Well, this morning, I want to talk to you about something that I feel very unqualified, yet very qualified to speak about. I want to talk about grace. I want to talk about grace. Grace is one of these gifts that God gives to mankind in various forms to the point that it becomes completed in us day, to, day by day. It's, it's, a, um, it's an interesting word. Let me ask you a question this morning. How do you define grace? If, when, when you think of God's grace, what immediately comes to your mind? Give me a few answers. What comes to your mind when you hear the word grace? Power to overcome. Okay? Unmerited mercy. I'm saved by grace. I don't deserve it. The power to do His will. What is God's grace about as it relates to our living a life of progressive Christianity? I want to talk about that this morning. How does grace and God go together to help me live a life that is pleasing to Him? Grace is a mystery of the depth of God's love for mankind. It is a, it's a mysterious word. It's used an awful lot. It's maybe abused an awful lot. But grace is one of those concepts of God's character of the way he looks at mankind. It's, it's an expression of God's character as he looks at us. But yet, but yet, it's probably one of those overused and underdefined concepts of God's character. And I want to try to dig into that a little bit today. I am not an expert on grace. I will, other than the fact is I've experienced it. And I continue to experience it every day, as, as you do. And I hope that we can get to a little understanding of what grace is in some of the forms that it comes to us. Our text for the morning is Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. And Michael nailed it. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Grace. We've been saved by grace through faith. Grace is the redeeming quality that God has towards all of mankind. There is not one person that was ever born on this earth that, doesn't, that God didn't, his, his, didn't intend his grace to flow into. It was God's intention that all men would receive the grace of God. Grace is the redeeming quality of God towards man. But maybe it's important that we understand that God created every person uniquely. We're all unique and we're all special in his sight. He loves every person just the way he made you. He made you the way you are because he loves you that way. He created you to look the way you look and the way you act. He created you that way. He's not given to any personality over another personality. He doesn't like blondes more than brunettes. He doesn't favor those that have money more than those that don't have money. God is no respecter of persons in any way, shape, or form. Quite simply, God loves every man. He loves every woman. There is no disconnect between God's love and mankind, no matter who you are. But let me ask some questions a little bit here this morning as we probe a little deeper into God's grace. Does God look upon all the people the same? 
Does he look upon all people the same? These are kind of tricky questions. What makes a person, if God does or doesn't, what makes God, or what makes a person look different in the sight of God? Are all people considered children of God? Is God's grace applied the same way to all people? Uh, there's some hard questions maybe to answer. They can be somewhat tricky, albeit besides one very powerful concept that God gave us, and that is the power of choice that he gave mankind to love him back. As we love him back, grace takes on a different format in our life. As we choose or reject God's grace, we have different consequences as a result. But before we can go much deeper here, we have to go back to the very beginning of time. See, prior to sin entering the world, God created Adam and Eve in a perfect relationship. He created mankind and he loved them. And he had a perfect relationship with them so that God would come down in the eve of the day, in the cool of the day, and walk with man face to face. He would walk with Adam and Eve in the garden and they would have fellowship and they would have relationship and God was good with that. He was pleased with that. He said it was good. He loved them, and he had relationship with them. But sin comes into the picture, and all of a sudden, the choice that man, that man took, Adam and Eve took, that choice that they choose to, chose to disobey brought a break in one of the two areas there. It didn't break God's love. God loves them just the same, but it broke their relationship with them because they chose to walk away from God. They chose the enemy's perspective over God's perspective, and therefore man's relationship with God was severed at that time. But it didn't change God's love. That's so amazing that it didn't change God's love. God had a choice that day. God had a choice that day when he came down to the garden to walk with Adam and Eve and he walked, he showed up and they didn't. And he called out, where are you? And they said, well, we have sinned. <laughs> How did they know they sinned? Well, because there was some truth in what the devil said. You will become like God. You will know good from evil. And they did. And God had a choice at that point in time. He had a choice to either continue on with the plan of mankind or he could have just as well wiped them out. It was only two people. It was only two people. It would have been very easy for God just to take the eraser and just erase them and say, not a bad, not a bad idea. Let's, let's forget these guys and let me restart over. He could have started over at that point in time very easily with Adam and Eve, but he didn't. I don't know why, other than the fact that maybe God's not a quitter. God doesn't quit anything he starts. And thank the Lord for that, because that means he's not quitting on you either. If he started something with you, he's going to finish it with you. God is not a quitter, and he proved it from the very beginning of time. He could have given Adam and Eve an immediate death sentence right then and there and said, you're done, you're dead, physically, spiritually, you're gone. He could have wiped them out, but he didn't. He didn't destroy them. He didn't destroy them and start over. That is where God's grace first entered in. His first act of grace was that he didn't destroy them. He gave them, a, he gave them another chance. He could have 
He could have wiped them out right there in the spot. But due to the grace of God, he gave them another chance. And maybe that's the best and simplest definition of God's grace we can come up with. Another chance. Another opportunity. God has given me and you another opportunity because of his grace. Just like he gave to Adam and Eve. Another chance. Another opportunity. So let's go back and answer a question I might have started a few minutes ago. If love, if God loves every person the same without respect of anything they've done to earn his love, then what makes them different in the sight of God? What makes them different in the sight of God? To answer this, we need to go back and read the scripture that preceded our text this morning in Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2, starting at verse 1. As for you... You were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Our nature, our sin, our actions deserved the wrath of God, not the grace of God. But then Colossians chapter 121, once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. We were enemies of God. We were enemies of God. We were not God's children in our sinful state. No, we were enemies of God. But yet he loved us. Doesn't the Bible say love your enemies? Well, God fulfills his word. He loves his enemies. He wants good things to happen to his enemies. He wants us to become a non-enemy, first of all. So he loves us so much that he wants us, he wants to love us into to being a friend, a child. He's given us opportunity that's called grace. Over and over and over. The basis of God's grace comes through the recognition that even though God's love is consistent among all people, the original sin problem of mankind changed man's relationship with God from son and daughter to enemy. Sin changed the relationship that Adam and Eve had from perfect creation to God's enemy. And that's what mankind is today. Let's recognize who we are prior to our conversion experience, that we are God's enemy and we are not in God. We cannot be God's friend until we have God in us. That's what the Bible says. We are an enemy of God because of our actions. And that means while we, while we remain in that sinful state, we're not God's children. We're simply God's creation. Humanity, humanity, the only way that we move into the, being an adopted son of, or a daughter of God is when we change our relationship individually from enemy to a son and daughter. That's through the blood of Jesus Christ. When I do that, there's a conversion experience that happens with me that I change sides. I change sides from being on the enemy's side to being on God's side. And now I am an heir. I am a joint heir with Christ. I am adopted into the family of God through that conversion experience. Grace. I don't deserve it, but that's God's plan. And as I receive it, God looks at me differently now. He doesn't look at me as an enemy any longer. He looks at me as a child. He looks at me as part of his family. Therefore, he wants to bring good things into my life. He wants to bless. He wants to bring eternal life. He wants to bless me with further grace. See, if this grace that God gave man the power to choose 
we have the power to return that love to God or not to return that love to God. That's what makes humans so special. That's what makes us different than dogs and horses. It's because we have power to choose to reflect the love of God back to Him. And when I do that, a miracle happens. A miracle happens. I go from death to life immediately. I am a new man in Christ Jesus because of the choice that I've made to receive God's love. Even though I don't deserve it. Even though I've done nothing to require it, God to do that. He, he has no obligation towards me other than the fact that He loves me. And that I love Him back. I choose it and I love Him back. So I want to talk about a little bit more about God's grace. There's 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 multiple forms of grace. I want to talk, I want to focus on three or four or three or so different kinds of, of grace. First of all, there's there's the grace of forgiveness. Number one, there's the grace of forgiveness. And then number two, there's the grace of acceptance and enablement. Acceptance and enablement. And then three, grace is moving into a completed form. It goes into a completed form as I live my life out unto freedom. Let's talk about grace and forgiveness. First of all, this is our text message. This is where God gives us forgiveness through grace. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. For it is by grace you have been saved. Very simple. This is the, this is the transaction power of God's grace to save me, to change me from an enemy to a child. It is the gift of God through the shed blood of Christ that gives us the opportunity to be saved from a path of destruction and death that we were on. That's the grace of forgiveness. None of us deserve it. None of us can earn it. None of us can boast about it. Nor do we really fully understand it. I don't believe. Because I look at it as a mystery. and say, God, why would you love me? Why would you do that for me? Why would you send as a king? Why would you come to earth for me? It's just an amazing concept. We don't have to clean ourselves up first. We come just as we are. We come in our sinful state. And he says, I love you. I loved you before. Before made yourself presentable. I loved you while you were ugly and sinful and dirty and wretched. I loved you. And as a result of his love, then God's grace comes into us and then the process of living starts. The process starts and we need to move from the, 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 the moment of grace, the moment of salvation, the moment of him cleaning us, uh, accepting us in our, in our wretchedness to the life of God's grace being completed in us. And that's what we're going to talk about as we move on here. But this is where the devil really gets upset. The devil doesn't like it when we accept God's grace because he's lost one of his own now. Now the devil has lost one. And he's going to come against you. And he's going to come for you because he wants you too. But not because he loves you. The devil wants you. But he doesn't come to bring you life and bring you health and strength. The devil comes to destroy he comes to seek and destroy, to devour. Because misery loves company. And he does know ultimately his fate. And he wants as many as God's creation, as many as God created that God loves, the enemy hates. As much as God loves you, understand the devil hates you just as much. To the depths of the, are, are, are the same. That's probably the only thing that they equal on, and that is their love and their hate. For as much as God loves you, the devil hates you. The devil hates you because he hates God. And because he can't get at God, he will get at you. Because he can't affect God, he will affect God's creation. He will affect what God loves so much that he gave his only son for. Then the devil says, I'm coming after you because I hate you that much. 
So just understand, I'm not trying to scare you with that. I'm just trying to make you, uh, reality sets in here so that when you, when you play with sin, understand the devil isn't your buddy here. He's not coming alongside you to say, come on, let's go have a good time together because I like you. No, he says, come on, let's go have a good time because I hate you. <laughs> because I want to destroy you. I want to hurt you. I want to take everything God has intended for you and I want to twist it around and I'm going to make it sound good, but I'm going to, at the end, I'm going to put a dagger in your back forever and ever and ever and you're going to be with me forever and ever in hell because I hate you. And Jesus is saying, oh, I love you so much. <laughs> I love you so much that I've defeated him. I defeated him already. He has no power in you. He has no power in you. He has no power in you. Listen to that. He has no power in you. If you have Jesus Christ in you, he has no power. He's a liar. He's a thief. He's a destroyer. That's all he's got is big words. They, then grace moves into the form of acceptance and enablement. As God forgives us through grace, he also welcomes us back into relationship with him as a son or daughter. Isn't that so amazing? When God welcomes us back into relationship, there's a party going to go on in heaven. There is a party going to happen in, all, in the best sense of the word because the son has come home. The prodigal's come home. Let's kill the fatted calf and let's have a party because the prodigal's come home. That's the way it is in heaven. When, everyone, when, en, when anyone comes into, the, into a salvation knowledge of Jesus, there's a, there is a holy, righteous party in heaven. And it goes on and on and on for every person. Let's go back to Ephesians and see how grace is working out in acceptance and enablement. Ephesians chapter 2, back to our text, starting at verse 4. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. See, he loved us first. We didn't have to clean ourselves. While we were dead in transgressions, Christ made us alive in him. It is by grace you have been saved. He said it again. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. That's why this, this grace is such a mystery because it comes at the beginning of our salvation and then it extends all the way through our life that God is going to bless us in, with incomparable riches and grace. So grace just keeps growing. It keeps getting bigger. It keeps getting more. It's just not a one-time event in our life. It is an ongoing thing. It is an ongoing power, an ongoing effect in our life, God's grace. It's not just for the moment of salvation. It is for all eternity, beginning the second day after you're saved. There is a process then of acceptance. God's love extends down to us while we're still sinners and says, I love you and I want you and I've given my son for you. And now that you've received him, I've got more grace in store for you. I've got more things I want to give you. And then God comes down according to what I just read. He comes, he comes down and he grabs us and he takes us up and he seats us up in heavenly places with Jesus. He doesn't just let us mingle down here in our own self-pity. No, he takes us out of it and he sets us on high with Christ so that we are in Christ's presence as sons and daughters of Jesus. We're sons and daughters of God. We're joint heirs with Christ. We are in his presence. Now, we may not be there physically today, but we, spiritually we are. We're with him spiritually. We're in the presence of God, by the grace of God, seated with him in eternal places. Yeah, it's awesome. When we think about heaven, heaven in some regards is not just a place. 
It is a state. It is a status. We are in heavenly places today because we are in Christ Jesus. We are walking in heavenly places today, even here on earth, because of the grace of God. We are now child of God. John chapter 1, verse 12. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become, a children, to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor out of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. Yeah. Jesus came so that God can make us children of him. And that we have the right now. See, we didn't have any right to be saved until we accepted the grace of God. Now, all of a sudden, I've got rights. Now, all of a sudden, I've got rights in the kingdom. I've got the right to become a child of God because of the grace of God. I don't have the right to become anything because of Mike. I have no rights in myself. My rights come as I become a child of God. Now, there comes responsibility with rights. There comes responsibility with power. And we have a lot of power. His grace has evolved from a saving grace now to an abiding grace. To a grace that reminds us that we are accepted into his family and that now he enables us to live a life worthy of being a son or daughter of the Most High God because of his grace. Here's that mystery of grace again. It is not just the beginning of salvation, but it changes, it evolves, it, it changes me. It, it gives me rights that I didn't have before, and it now gives me responsibilities that I didn't have before, and it gives me the ability to do the things that I didn't have before because of God's grace. And he, it enables me now, it gives me power to live a life that I couldn't live before because I was an enemy of God. Now I'm a child of God. And now as a child of God, I have new rights. I have new responsibilities to live a life worthy of the Lord. I'm changing. I'm growing up. I'm becoming mature. I was talking to my daughter, Jenna, the other day. Just We went down and saw her um, yesterday down at Ferris. She's got a pretty big, heavy workload this year, she's getting into her uh, core classes in dental hygiene, and she's actually working on people's teeth. By the way, if you need your teeth cleaned, she needs some patience. So uh, it's only four hours <laughs> sitting in a dental chair, and it's a lot of fun. <laughs> but anyway, so she's a little overwhelmed right now. And she said it the other day. She goes, you know, I don't want to grow up. I'd like to be a kid. Growing up stuff is hard. And she said, I just watched the, the, the Disney movie, you know, Pocahontas. She goes, that's what I want to be. I just want to watch Disney movies. I don't want to have to grow up and work on people's teeth. That's too hard. Well, I'm sorry. We don't have the choice, unless you're Peter Pan. We don't have the ability to stay young. We're going to grow up physically. Now, here is the choice spiritually, though. You do have the choice spiritually if you're going to grow up or not. Do you know that? Do you know that you can stay babies spiritually? It's your choice to grow up. <laughs> you can be Peter Pan spiritually all you want, but with that, though, comes a whole other set of consequences that are not good, that are not powerful, that, that, that you lose your rights. So I'm encouraging all of us this morning that we choose to grow up spiritually, and we choose to allow the grace of God to mature us so that we can become um, acceptable and worthy so that the Lord will hear it, that, so that we really will hear Jesus say to us, well done, thou good and faithful. It's said to those that grow up, well done, thou good and faithful. 
See, God takes up a, as we abide in Christ, as this abiding grace empowers us, He takes up residence in our life and He dwells in us as we become growing children of God, growing up children of God. We're accepted and we're adopted where God wants us now more than just our Savior. He becomes our Lord. We talked about that a week or two ago. There's a difference between Savior and Lord. And we normally say it backwards. We say it Lord and Savior. But really, it should be the other way around. It should be Savior and Lord. Because He first becomes my Savior by accepting Jesus Christ as my propitiation for my sins. By His blood covering me, He saved me. He wasn't my Lord first. He's my Savior first. And now after I'm saved, now I choose to make Him my Lord and when, I become, when he becomes my Lord, now everything that I do funnels through that filter of his lordship in my life. So now I want to please him. I want to do the things that are, are good for the kingdom because I've chosen to place him as the Lord of my life. So he becomes Savior and Lord, not Lord and Savior. I know maybe that's just, maybe that's just pickiness. I don't know, but he can't be my Lord until he's my Savior. And now after I'm a saved person now he can be my Lord so God takes up residence in me he, he abides within me Romans chapter 8 verse 14 for those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God the Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again rather the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship and by him we cry Abba Father and the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children now now if we are in children if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we also may share in his glory. Man, I, I think that's probably one of my, I've probably read that passage of scriptures and the times I've been preaching here more times than any other scriptures I've read probably. That to me is, that's the whole, that's the whole nut of salvation right there. That I now become a child of God and he adopts me as a son. And now he, I can call him Abba, which is Daddy, Father, the most intimate form of Daddy name in, 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 in Greek. That it becomes Abba, Daddy, Daddy, Father, God. That it's intimate now. And now I'm a child of God. And, and I have the rights. I have the rights that Jesus has. Do you understand that? I have the rights. And I'm a co-heir. I'm a co-heir with Christ. Meaning he's given me rights that I didn't have before. And that makes me weepy. That makes me, that makes me um, emotional. That makes me fired up sometimes for, for who, what I am now because I didn't have it before and I didn't deserve it. We're accepted into the family of God. And because of that, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Paul said that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You know, and, and he said that in, in Philippians chapter 4, but what he said there was interesting because... Um, that doesn't make me Superman. That doesn't mean I can, I can jump over tall buildings with one leap and I can stop, you know, rage, you know, locomotives, or I can. I'm, a fa I'm not faster than a speeding bullet anymore. That, that's not what he's talking about. That's that's Superman stuff. But I can do all things to Christ. When I read the context of that scripture, Paul was coming out of hardship. He was coming out of an area of he had to be contented. In fact, it's right here, Philippians chapter 4, verse 11. Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased, and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer in need. And then he goes on to say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. We, this is kind of what we talked about before, about living in the moments. 
and how we live successfully in the moments. We live successfully in, a, in the moments knowing that those moments strengthen me as I, as I know my future. I know my future is, is in Jesus. I know my future is solid in Christ. Now the moments that come, they strengthen me as I live through those bad times, those hard times. I don't have to have um, the happy feelings in my life to be successful in my moments. And Paul's saying the same thing here. When I'm abiding in the grace of God, when I'm abiding in the grace of God, His grace enables me to get through the hard times of life because the hard times of life are coming, aren't they? They're here among us. We've been suffering here a little bit with some losses here recently. Those are hard times, and it's only by the grace of God that we abide in Him and get through those things. It's, it allows us to know that Jesus is in the boat with us. He's right there with us. I'm a co-heir with Him. It doesn't mean I'm going to be happy all the time. It doesn't mean I have to be smiley all the time. But it gives me peace. It gives me assurance that I know that my future is solid. And that makes me happy. That gives me joy. Not the circumstance. Not the fact that I lost a job or I don't have enough money to pay bills this week or, I, or something bad happened. That, that gives me pain. That gives me sorrow. But when I know that Jesus is in the boat with me and I know that he's going to provide everything for me because of Matthew 6.33, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things will be added. When I keep him as my perspective, when I keep him as my first goal, my priority is in Jesus Christ, all these other things are going to be added unto me. All my needs will be met. That gives me joy. That gives me peace because I know who I'm serving. That is what it means to abide in grace. Now, number three, grace then moves into a form of completion in our life. It, forms in, it moves into a form of completion. And I don't know that we'll ever truly be completed in grace until the day we go home to meet Jesus face to face. But we are in a completing state every day. We living, we're living in a state of completion of grace. And this is where I think grace is misunderstood and misapplied much, many, many times in, in the lives of Christians today. I think this is where we have a, an ultimate source of confusion in those that profess to be Christians and yet will be missing heaven. Did I just say that? Did I just say that there are those that are professing to be Christians and are going to miss heaven? Can I say that? You see, we say, we've heard it said, and maybe we've even said it ourselves, that we are living in the era of not, we're no longer under law of the Old Testament. Rather, we're under the era of grace. Is that a true statement? What does it mean? What does it mean for us to say that we are in the era of grace? See, for many who say that, I think that they use that to justify some poor actions, some poor choices. And this is where I might get a little bit I think we all do it to some degree. I know I've been guilty of it. I've been guilty of it, and it's, but that doesn't mean it's right. Just because I've been guilty of it, it doesn't mean it's right. Just you know that. I sin like you do. You used to sin like you do. That's another whole topic right there. But I think that for those that say we live in an era of grace, I think that they're living on a dangerous area of, of living because it's almost using grace as a bumper in, in bumper bowling. 
put bumper pads in the bowling alley and in the lanes, and you never will bowl, uh, you'll never get a gutter ball because that bumper there will always keep the ball on the track. You'll always hit at least one pin. You may not get a strike, but you'll always hit at least one pin. And many times when we say we live in an era of grace, what we're really saying is that we want to live as close to that bumper of worldly living as we can and still be a Christian. And I think that's a misapplication of the era of grace. I think truly, when we truly understand that we live in an era of grace, I think what that means is that we should be living as close as we can to Jesus. We should be living in the whole opposite extreme. If this is the gutter here that I put my bumper in, I want to be as far away from it as I can. And that's living truly in the era of grace. That I live so close to Jesus that I don't want to do anything that would put me close to this gutter of, of the worldliness. That I want to live so close to Jesus now that I am fully entrenched in his grace. And his grace is doing a marvelous transformation in my life because it's making me not want to do the things that we're supposed to do. That's how grace becomes completed in us. That's how it really works in us. That somehow, somehow that there's a there's a mentality that that by living on the edge of Christianity closest to the world is better than living on the edge of Christianity closest to Jesus. There's some mentality out there in church worldness someplace that says, you know, if I can live Christian life so close to the world, that's pretty successful. That's pretty good. I don't know where that comes from. Because it certainly doesn't come from God's word. What it really says is I need to I need to get away from I need to shun the things of the world. I, I need not have a hint of sexual immorality or any other kind of evil in my life. That's what the Bible says. Not even a hint of it. People that when they see my good works, then they glorify God. Because I'm living so far away from that that I want to live in the righteousness. That is true freedom. That is truly getting away from the world, and that is truly living under the abiding power of God's grace. It's because I want to avoid, I want to avoid the things that would, that would try to take me over into that worldly living. I want to get away from that. I want to stay away from that. I want God's grace to change me inside, and He will, if I allow Him to. He will take away my tendency. He'll take away my desire to sin. So that I don't have to sin anymore. I am not a sinner saved by grace. I am a new man in Christ Jesus. I am no longer that sinner man because grace is completing itself in me that I don't have to sin anymore. Now, that doesn't mean I don't make mistakes. It doesn't mean that I don't sin. But when I do sin, it's not because I want to. It's because I just fall into it every once in a while. But here's the difference between a person that falls into it every once in a while or a person that lives in it. A person that lives in it likes it. <laughs> and he wants to stay in it. And he'll make any excuse he can to call it his little pet sin. Oh, it's just my personality. Uh, it's just who I am. I, I can't change everything in my life. Nonsense. Yes, you can. You don't have to live in that. When you get in that, when you fall down, what you do is you pick yourself up and you say, Jesus, forgive me. Forgive me. Cleanse me again. That's not getting saved again. People say, well, you only get saved one time. Well, maybe so. But I go to Jesus every day and I say, Jesus, would you cleanse me this morning? Would you cleanse me? Would you take anything that is in me that's not pleasing in your sight? And would you make it, would you bring it to my attention so that I can deal with it? That's called living in the grace of God. That's not abusing the grace of God. That's living in the grace of God. Because now I allow that grace to be an evaluation tool in my life to make me 
want to be more like Christ every day. That gives me freedom, and that gives me a hope, and that gives me a joy, and that gives me a purpose of living. Christ's yoke is an amazing thing. Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 and 29. It says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Hmm. You know, I used to read that, and uh, never really clearly understood that. Because um, it didn't seem easy and light. But you know, when I see it differently, I've seen it differently now as I look at grace. And how grace applies in my life, and how I allow grace to be. I used to read it and say that I really didn't believe it because I didn't see God's yoke as easy or light. But when I compare the yoke, hear me, when I compare the yoke of fleshly living, when I compare the yoke of fleshly consequences to the yoke of living under God's commands of holiness, oh man, there's a whole different level of freedom. See, when I do things the way I want to do things in my flesh, I can really make a mess in my life. In fact, probably the bigger problems in my life are because I allowed it to happen. Now, there are some things that happen that we don't have control over, sicknesses, diseases, some of those things. But yet, when I make poor choices, my choices have consequences. Yeah? My choices have consequences. When I allow my heart, my flesh, to make a poor choice, there's a consequence with that. And I don't think that, I, I think, I believe, I believe God's word says that when I choose Christ's yoke upon me of holiness, and I then choose to live my life in holiness, and I have holy consequences, I believe that yoke is much lighter than fleshly consequences that come with fleshly yoking. Make sense? Am I confusing him? I hope not. But when I put on Christ's yoke upon me, now I have the desire to live holy. I have the desire to put away my fleshly desires, which brings bad and negative consequences. And now I bring God's presence upon me, and I bring his truth upon me. And the Bible says, truth sets you free. Truth sets you free. Therefore, that is a lighter yoke. So when I compare Christ's yoke, it is heavy. It is lighter than the yoke of the worldliness that brings destruction and death. So that's an awesome thing. And if that's not enough, if that's not enough for you, then let me read another passage of Scripture here that gets kind of heavy about how grace can be abused. This is the hard verse. Hebrews chapter 10, starting at verse 26. It says, if we deliberately, and the key word is deliberately, if we deliberately keep on sinning after we have learned or after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sin but only a fearful expectation of judgment and a raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Who? The children of God or the enemies of God? Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy and a testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think someone deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified him, that was the blood of the covenant we had in communion this morning, and who has insulted the spirit of grace? that grace word again, that mysterious word called grace, and we can we insult God's grace? We can insult it. 
if we deliberately, deliberately keep on sinning and then call on God to forgive us. That's premeditated. That's like premeditated murder. Premeditated sin. Now, some could say, well, every sin is premeditated. Well, I, I don't know. I, I don't believe that. I, 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 guess, I guess it is, but I think when I'm living a holy life, when I'm living on that, that when I'm taking the yoke of, of Christ-likeness upon me and I'm truly living my life as far as I can from the world and I have a sin that makes, you know, I, I mess up and I screw up, that's not, that's not deliberate premeditated sin. That's just, that's just Mike. <laughs> that's, just my, that's just who I am. But I don't like it. I don't live in it. I deal with it. Verse 30 says, For we know him who said, It is mine to avenge, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Hard passage, but it's true. And when I look at the truth that way and I say, All right, that gives me enough reason right there to stop deliberately sinning. Stop it. Get out of it. Move away from it. Move into a Christ-likeness that puts me into the spirit of grace that gives me the yoke of Christ, which is lighter than the yoke of the world. Now I can live that way, and I don't have to sin anymore. I don't want to sin anymore. I truly don't want to sin anymore. I want to live for Jesus. I want to live pleasing in His sight, and I want to be a righteous man and a righteous woman or a righteous child or a righteous dad or grandpa, whatever it is. I want that in my life, and I need the power of the Holy Spirit to help me. Jackie, if you would come and start playing, I'll stop talking in a minute. See, it's, it's important that we read God's Word and see what He expects of us and, and so how He instructs us to live that a life that's pleasing to Him. We need to willfully and regularly check our hearts and lives, don't we? It, it's only right that we do that. If we truly want God's grace to change us, to abide in us, then we need to give Him the I don't want to continue in the 
separation, but would bring closeness to the Lord. I hope that this helps you understand God's grace a little bit more today. That we understand that God's grace is an amazing mystery of His goodness and His love for us. That it is something to strengthen me and to encourage me and to build me up, to make me better. to make an evident reaction to this, to the Lord, would you just raise your hand and just wave it before the Lord and say, Lord, that's me. I just want that continuing grace in my life. I just want it to work in my life. And I want you to know, Lord, that I need you. I need you. And I need you more and more every day. See, when you raise your hand to the Lord like that, what you're doing is that you're not saying you're a bad person. You're not, you're not condemning yourself. What you're doing is you're showing the devil whose side you're on. You're showing the devil that I am not on my side. I am not, I, I am not afraid to look to the Lord for my help and my strength. And for me, I raised two hands on that one because I need the Lord's strength doubly much. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Let's sing the song that Jackie's playing, Amazing Grace. And let's just sing that song and let, it just, let us just take residence in us now that, that God's grace would just fill us and strengthen us and that we would just so much more want His abiding power and His abiding grace. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound
Oh. 